Welcome to Death and Donuts. I'm Seb James. I'm a Sydney-based journalist and filmmaker who is passionate about exploring the topics of faith and purpose. And uh, my favorite book actually is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Some of you have may have heard of it. I highly recommend you read it. It's sort of a prologue to this podcast. Uh, yesterday I found out, unfortunately, that a dear friend of mine and a dear friend of my family's, James Raju, had passed away. Uh, he only passed away like two days ago. I was, of course, very saddened to hear of his death. But I also found great consolation in knowing that James had searched for answers to life's biggest questions. And when some of those questions were answered, he experienced uh, what he describes as a great peace and joy. So I came to know James as a 12-year-old living in the northwest of Sydney, Australia. I was playing in a plot of land, actually, that sat between my family and our next-door neighbor's house. Um, And our next-door neighbors at the time were a Singaporean Indian family. And one day, my neighbor, Santosh, who was probably seven or eight years old at that time, started playing silly buggers with me by yelling, hey, then hiding from me. And I was soon introduced to his uncle, James Raju, who would come and stay in Sydney every once in a while visiting from London or Singapore. Uh, James was a lot older than me, uh, like 20 or 30 years older. Um, Obviously, he was a lot more mature than me. I was just a very immature teen at the time, but we also sort of sparked a friendship and um, he was one of the loveliest blokes I had met so far in life. And uh, he was introduced to my family soon after and of course my parents uh, became a close um, family friend of his um, and, and obviously the family, the Marnies. And um, anyway, we're, we're Catholic, my family's Catholic and obviously I'm eternally grateful for this and you know, this podcast, if you continue to listen, um, you'll understand why. But my parents actually came from quite irreligious and broken homes. Mum's parents separated when she was only like a teenager and she had no faith. And my dad's mother left him uh, with his father and two siblings for another man. My dad was actually only 12 at the time and the oldest of the, of the three kids. So it was very tragic for him. Anyway, those years um, when I was a teen in in, uh, in Sydney, in Northwest Sydney, I got to know James very well. And um, but I personally wasn't really making an effort to understand what life was about, or didn't really care, um, to be honest. And I wasn't interested in anything related to God, really. I guess my main interest was, you know, my friends, um, and we just focused on making a nuisance of ourselves. We would run amok in the streets, you know, graffiti, steal shit, blow up crap, <laughs> run from cops. Um, you know, we're into loud music, sport, of course, sex, alcohol, all that stuff, all the kit and caboodle that, you know, ratty teenagers are into. <laughs> but I actually found out during this time that James was asking my parents if they could teach him how um, a bit more about Jesus Christ, about Christianity. And that had an impact on me. Um, because I realized that Christ had some answers for him, or he thought that Christ had some answers. And uh, whilst I hadn't really considered that Christ could answer people's deep um, personal questions. And uh, James had had a really interesting life up to this point. He was actually adopted at a very young age into a big Hindu family in Singapore, I believe. And then obviously he'd gone on to work in various professions and he traveled the world, had a few romantic relationships along the way. But he really had never quenched that inner thirst for peace. Um, And that inner peace, we know, comes from 
a love greater than any other. Um, and we all know deep down that that exists within us that, and, we, and we seek that love. Um, but also we know it's impossible to attain completely the fullness of love um, in this life. Anyhow, James was actually baptized a Catholic and my parents were his godparents. Um, I moved out of home at around 17 and therefore I actually very rarely saw James after that point. Um, he'd only come in and out of Oz and, uh, and so I, yeah, I just never got to catch up with him much. But obviously now I hope and pray that uh, you know I'll get to meet him again and we'll be able to enjoy each other's company for more than just a few fleeting hours. But his story um, really prompted me to start this podcast finally, which I've been meaning to do for a very, very long time. But it's, uh, it's always difficult uh, to start a podcast and sometimes I get disheartened by the, the fact that there are freaking millions of podcasts out there. But, you know, as someone once said, you know, we have to drown evil in a, an abundance of good. So um, I'm going to kick this off. So uh, I guess to start with, every single one of us is on a journey, like James was on a journey, I'm on a journey. And we all will experience joys and sufferings, triumphs and tribulations on this journey. But we're all on a quest to find truth and, and, and lasting happiness for ourselves and those we love. Um, and as cliche as it sounds, I think we, we're all striving to see every single person be happy and, and fulfilled. But also, I think we also seek to love someone who is truly special. The one who gives us life is the source of life, who sustains us and who can heal us from those wounds which we know no medical doctor can treat or even see. Um, over the years, I've met people at different points on, on life's journey. Some don't think they're on a journey, while others think they're on a journey um, that ends in death and that death has the final say, which I think is very, very tragic that they think like that. But then I met people who have surprised me. They've surprised me with their joy, their inner spark, which suddenly flares up into a glorious laughter or into burning tears of love or into a stirring song they sing. And when I ask them, well, like, where does this spark come from? Where is this honest and natural humor derived? They always tell me the same thing or they point me in the same direction. Not all share the same upbringing, nor do they share the same subjective beliefs or opinions. But all the people I've met who have this peace and joy that is beyond compare, they've all had a moment or moments, I guess you could say, of clarity where everything seems to click. They all decided at one point in time to cast off the shackles of indifference or apathy, of self-loathing or hatred or whatever it is that's really holding them back. And they really try to make sense of their life and the universe which sustains them. And they want to do this before death comes to greet them. Some are still searching um, for more answers. For, But I guess, you know, we are all on that journey and we're all continuous searching for the fullness of truth goodness and beauty and we will to do that until our final breath um, anyway in this first interview I speak with father Sam Fancourt who hails from a small town called Taranaki on the North Island of New Zealand this town uh, it's and its surrounding beauty featured prominently in the movie the last samurai starring Tom Cruise one of my favorites well, Sam and I lived together for a few years in Sydney and we've remained pretty close ever since, probably because we became brothers in a very real supernatural sense. Uh, a few years before I met Sam, he woke up one day in the late hours of the morning somewhere in Auckland, probably after another boozy night and began questioning 
if booze and friends with benefits were the answers to life's biggest questions. He concluded then and there that there had to be more. Thus ensued one of the most intriguing journeys of self-discovery I've heard. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the incredible tale of a young man who went from a hedonistic atheist in New Zealand to a Roman Catholic priest now living in Rome. Can you, Sam, Father Sam, now Father Sam, can you tell me a little bit about your up, upbringing in New Zealand Taranaki? When you look at things certainly humanly, um, I think I was extremely lucky in the sense that I grew up in a, a family that didn't have any problems. Yeah. Um, didn't have any problems within the family, didn't have any problems financially, didn't, didn't, we didn't really have any problems. Yeah. And, and with kind of a good mix of parents, you know, my dad and my mum, um, are both absolutely fantastic, mm. but had very different perspectives and everything. So we we all grew up in, a, in an environment which was coloured by different opinions and and the fact that you could think differently and and there was kind of no limit ever imposed on what we could think. Or, nor in fact do we have kind of limits to the horizon of what we could do in the future. Okay, like, I think that was something that was, for me was really. Retrospectively, looking back, I realised it was really useful. So I never had the feeling that I was obliged to do something in life. It was always a matter of like, well, whatever you choose. But then, of course, from the point of view of the faith, well, I mean, I grew up very far from the faith. We didn't have any yes. as a family. Mm. And I know was it even a point of discussion. Like, it, it wasn't a thing of, well, you know, we don't have faith, we need to talk about it. It was just a thing of a zero topic. It wasn't even on the radar. So the really interesting thing was that religion, as far as I was concerned when I was growing up, was a non-entity. It yeah. just wasn't even uh, wasn't even something to be taken into account or considered. So your parents were both medical doctors, right? Correct, yeah. And so what was the general... Uh, vibe at home it was as you said like very respectful of um of your own personal decisions um were you given a lot of freedom in terms of uh, making decisions around um, going out for example or the people that you would socialize with were you given a lot of freedom in that regard the long the short of it is that um i was given a huge amount of freedom possibly even too much freedom uh, i think <laughs> they they my parents, I don't know if they trusted us completely, but they certainly respected our need to be able to choose completely. And okay. there are really very, very few limits put on, put on us. I think um, certainly when it came time to study for exams, my mum and dad were pretty keen for me to sit down and study and stop socialising, which one can understand. Yes. But And then as far as people I would hang out with, I, mean, I think that's a really interesting topic because... Um, although my brother and sister both went to a very high-level private boarding school, yeah, uh, I went to a let's say very modest public school. Okay, uh, it was my sister started there, but then she transferred. Mm -hmm. And as far as people I would hang out with goes, it meant that I was with a great plethora of. People, like a great variety of people from yep. all sorts of different walks of life and different yes. personalities. And, yes. And it was fantastic. And I think, to be honest, that um, that for me dominated my mentality towards people in general. That, yes. You know, I'm not from a particular clan, I'm not from a particular sector of society, but you know, you, you, uh, everyone you meet 
has something to contribute. Everyone he meets fantastic. Yes. Okay. That's great. So you had a pretty happy childhood, you would say. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't offer a single complaint, really. Yeah. I could find something to complain about, but it wouldn't be fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's good. It's good. And you obviously got an okay final mark out of school to get into university. Is that right? Well, I don't know if it's okay or not, or if it was okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was okay or not, but. To be honest, I should have done enormously better. My final year at high school was was a bit of an academic disaster. I had by that stage started to enter into interests other than study, and and when it came to exams or assignments, I really couldn't be bothered. So more than getting an okay mark, I'll say I I stumbled through mm-hmm. getting a mark grotesquely lower than what I should have. Yeah, but. That probably all fitted within the plan of divine providence as well. I ended up studying, consequently, IT at, at Auckland University. Okay. I, mean, I, I had to get a half decent mark to get into IT at Auckland University. Yeah. But um, but yeah, look, it was one of those times when it was the beginning of my let's let's call it a downward slide. <laughs> and so, tell me about so you went from Taranaki to Auckland University to study IT. When you went to Auckland University, were you like, sweet, um, let me uh, enjoy and savour the the great um, things that come with the university lifestyle? Just <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to that university lifestyle, but the academic part probably wasn't wasn't one of them. <laughs> so what were you looking I forward to outside of yeah. yeah, what were you looking forward to outside of the um, the study? <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> Look, I, I don't know that I I really knew what to expect. Well, I knew it was a sort of new phase of life. And you, you, you leave home with, with sort of almost euphoria of, of new things coming that you haven't yet experienced. And so mm. in my case, like many others, I kind of fell into a university residence and yep. and found this hyperabundance of social life and stuff you could do and time you could spend with others, which... For me, it was absolutely epic. It was great. It was exactly what I wanted to do. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, didn't leave much time for study. But <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's good to know. Be, be very honest. And so were you interested in socializing with attractive women and were you interested in drinking and um, recreational drugs and those sorts of things was that on the agenda for you considering you are a Kiwi and you went to Auckland University I was interested in pretty, pretty much everything pretty much everything <laughs> <laughs> certainly all of, all of the aforementioned yes <laughs> that's it okay and so okay so first year uni you start to socialize a lot you start to let's say experiment with things and uh, having a good time okay and then when did things start to change a little bit when did you start to think maybe on a deeper level or might might start to think uh, that this isn't satisfying uh, a deeper hunger I have for happiness or something along those lines yeah went through a few years of I basically went through a few, a few years in that kind of style of life and, and enjoying myself, at least thinking I was enjoying myself thoroughly. I was enjoying myself thoroughly. Yes. But really what happened is that I, I woke up one day and I was lying around in bed, which I used to do quite a lot in those days. <laughs> and I realized that you know, I wasn't going to class. 
was failing like all my subjects at university. I had this part-time job, which I really enjoyed, but was completely dead-end job. Like I was never going to get a career out of it. Mm-hmm. And I came to the shocking realization that my life was a complete waste of time. You know, I was going nowhere. <laughs> and so that was, and sort of, I mean, you know, retrospectively you look at that and go, well, well, you see the hand of divine providence in that. Mm. But at the time, it was really almost a purely human consideration that, well, this is this is just dumb. I'm just wasting my life. What mm. am I going to do? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really have any idea what to do. Yeah, and so I sort of decided, well, okay, after my twenty-first, which was probably about two months away from that point, mm-hmm. after my twenty-first, I'm going to quit everything dodgy and set my life on a straight and narrow. Yeah. The only problem is that I had absolutely no idea what the straight and narrow was. I just knew it wasn't what I was doing at the time. Okay. And, yeah, look, that's how it evolved, really. Yeah, and then you saw saw that and you thought, okay, I want to go on the straight and narrow. What were some of the first things or ideas that came um, to mind? Or did you start reading books to try and find out what the straight and narrow was? Um, how to get your life in order or was it just through socializing with certain people that uh, help you sort those no, issues out I strangely enough I don't I don't think it was that reflexive I I mean I kind of knew that you know all the all the debauchery wasn't that crash hot yes and that it would be good to actually sit down and study and things like that yes but then it, the Reflecting on it kind of stopped there. It didn't. It didn't go much further. Yeah. Because it wasn't like I'd started looking for the meaning of life. Let's say okay. I just realised, okay, well, I I need to change my life. Yeah. To what I didn't know. Yeah. And so as it happened, of course, the thing is that provoked social change as well. You know, instead of going to the pub and drinking a whole lot of beer, you. <laughs> go to the pub and drink just one while everyone else is drinking a whole lot and and that sort of changes the dynamic a bit because you know in the pub has a different a different focus and it's yeah. you sort of end up wondering sometimes exactly why you're there and you start to think you start to think well I mean yeah what's the deal with all this mm. and at the same time I changed flats so I was living in in a suburban towards Pamua Glen Innes in Auckland and moved into a different flat where there were different people living there amongst whom was a Catholic friend of mine mm-hmm. and and also there was this Protestant girl who had been in contact with me periodically during the years I mm-hmm. met her in my first year at, at university she okay. was really really good to me yes and she just sort of kept in contact and mm. so because I stopped going to the pub so much yeah well I had more time to socialise with them Okay. And so, and that vein, you know, we started to talk a bit more about you know, what what was going on and what was, yeah, more yeah. about religion or faith or whatever. And at first, though, you when you were talking to them, did you find it? Uh, how do I put this? So sometimes when you speak to atheists, they feel like they have a an intellectual superiority because you're a person of faith. So. Um, did you feel that um, superiority or like that there was something lacking in um, the intellectual capacity of your two friends because they had faith? I don't know if I felt something was lacking in their intellectual capacity because they had faith, mm. but I was absolutely convinced 
that I had the right answer. Okay. I mean, I, yeah, the, the concept of, of a God existing didn't really even occur to me as a realistic possibility. Okay. So, yeah, I used to sit down with this Catholic, Catholic friend of mine and we'd, uh, I wouldn't say argue, we'd, we'd, we'd talk about this kind of stuff and I'd always be taking the mickey out of him and telling him that his ideas were ridiculous. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, you know, look, I mean, I was just, I was complete, completely at peace with the fact that I had the right answer. So, okay, so tell me then how you went from taking the mickey out of your religious friends, your Christian friends, to taking them a bit more seriously, perhaps. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, you could kind of sum that in one of many various ways, but for me, a really fundamental point was that I was around at this girl's house one day and we were talking and I was bagging her out about religion and telling her how stupid it was mm-hmm. and and she says to me well oh, but have you ever prayed and I don't know what I said to her I've got no idea what my response was but I, I remember distinctly thinking of course not why would I mm-hmm. like the idea of a God existing as being actually possible was something so remote so non-existent that it didn't even occur to me that prayer would have any 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 purpose whatsoever. Mm. And but the interesting thing was that then yeah, you know, I went home and as I was thinking about it, it, sort of occurred to me that well you know why not? And really, I think that was a fundamental change because the whole question changed from being a merely intellectual question to being an existential question to being something of like not just at a theoretical level but, you know, does god exist you know like a kind of nice philosophical philosophical question to ponder yeah but the idea that if god exists that means something for me mm. like that changes my life and yeah. so that's a question you want to answer yeah. like really you want to answer it yes or no couldn't matter doesn't matter which but you want to answer it. Yeah. Interesting. And and then you went home that night or that day and um, those that that idea came to you, like I want to answer that and then and then was it that became your focus in life a bit or one of your main focuses to 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 seek out whether God existed or did you just um, open yourself up to uh, to you know the potentiality or the possibility that there is a God, and you said, "Look, God, if you do exist, come into my life." How did it work? Um, yeah, kind of. You could even a combination of the both. It was funny. I, I was I went home that night. And I was lazing around in bed trying to get to sleep, and I sort of thought, "Well, yeah, look, if you pray and God exists, then you're tremendously in the benefit." Right? Yeah. And if you pray and God doesn't exist, then you're going to feel stupid for about 10 seconds. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay then. That sounds just fine. So I said, more or less verbatim, I said, okay, God, I admit, if you exist, I want to know about it. I don't ask for much. Just be a burning bush or something. <laughs> if you're God, it can't be that hard. Yeah. And I went to sleep. Okay. And, and that kind of summarizes a little bit my, my approach to the thing. I was like, well, okay, I mean, look, objectively speaking, intellectually, you know, 
if they exist, I want to know about it. But, you know, I mean, he's got to figure out the way somehow or other, you know? In mm. fact, yeah, the following night I went to bed and I said the same thing again. The third night, uh, same thing again, but I was like, okay, God, if you just, you would have heard me the first time. So after this, it's up to you. I said the same thing again and I went to sleep again. Okay. And I think, again, retrospectively, looking at it, you can sort of understand these things and understand these things with a bit more clarity. Yeah. But that was interesting because that, that was the point where I really saw a change in my in my disposition, which was to go, okay, I want to know. I'm open, Yeah. but I want to know. So then, um, so you didn't get a burning bush, but you... Well, in a way, you did. Like uh, it was more of an interior burning bush, I guess. I guess if if to use an analogy of like you you had a some walls set up that you knocked down. Would you say that like within yourself that you became just more open-minded? I suppose that there must have been some sort of walls there, but yeah. uh, in the sense that I was already quite convinced of my atheistic tendencies. You know, there was no yeah. no doubt in my mind. Really. But then, by the mere fact of actually deciding to be willing, you know, like, okay, I'm open. It changes everything because, mm. you know, whatever the intellectual reasons are, whatever they might be, mm. if God exists and he can show himself to me, I mean, not meaning physically, but, you know, um, but if he, can, if he can prove to me that he exists, mm. uh, I'm willing to accept it with all its consequences, which mm. really is kind of a bit the hard part because when we talk about being open, to the existence of God really we're not many times we're not talking simply about the fact that okay God exists or not yeah I think pretty much anyone realizes that if God exists that's going to change your life yeah and it's that that's that's the real key part to be open absolutely open no matter what mm. Mm. now in hindsight is there a way you could advise people to become open is there a, like a uh, something that they could do to become open to to the possibility that there is a God. Sure, pray. Okay. I mean, in and of itself, that's a. I mean, I said that first. I suppose because it was my personal experience. Mm. But the reality is that in the very the very act of really sincerely saying that, yeah, you you express in a really practical way an openness. Yeah. And then <clears throat> tell me a little bit more about how you discerned, um, okay, God exists. I, 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 I have enough reasons to believe in his existence now or um, it's just apparent to me now. Uh, then how did you move towards Christianity? So how did I decide God exists is kind of a combination of two factors. One, the, the intellectual aspect, which is, just rationalizing it is, yeah. is this a realistic rational possibility mm-hmm. which which is the case i mean yeah. yeah we can i think anyone can accept that it is a realistic rational possibility yes and then that has to go hand in hand with something more it has to go hand in hand with the with the existential part with the 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 me and god part yeah because you know the existence of god I don't think it's, I mean, it exists purely on a rational level. 
mm. even you know, talk in terms of faith and mm. the way people have explained it through centuries that faith is a gift mm. and so it's, it, it surpasses the merely rational yes and one thing is to god should exist for example yes another thing is to actually realize oneself yep i know it god exists and, and for me that was why prayer was so important mm. because those days well, during those months I would always be talking asking God for things provoking him at the beginning much more you know like if you exist then yeah. whatever yeah. and as I became more and more convinced of his presence mm. I started to let's say provoke him less mm-hmm. and talk to him more and mm. ask for things yeah, there's no sort of well for me at least you know, I'll struck the light. It was this thing that I'm entering entering into is I, I can't explain it through my imagination. I can't explain it to my personal desires. I can't explain it through anything else. It's just I I know he's there, and I can't deny it. And that's the amazing thing about the gift of faith. Yeah, and then then it was more about relationship with God, right? After that point. Yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, you reach the point where you go, well, I, I can't deny that God exists, so I, mean, I, I know he's there. Yeah. And then you sort of, I mean, to say develop a personal relationship with God almost sounds grotesquely cliched. Um, yeah. But, I mean, in the end, that's sort of what it is. It's what maybe in the classics of spiritual literature people would talk about more as being um, an interior life. Yes. Uh, whatever terminology you use to express it. Yes. Sorry, but, you know, realistically, if, if God does exist, you're an idiot if, if you don't try to get closer to him. Yeah, that's right. And then can you talk a little bit more about um, the Protestant girl that you met at uni and where she fit into the picture? Yes, I think at some point, if I'm not mistaken, about the time when I was in this phase of looking for God, trying to understand if this was a, 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 a real thing or not, we, we started to grow closer and closer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we sort of started to, well, initially we, we weren't really dating as such. I think particularly she was quite convinced that uh, she needed to be going out with someone who, who was of the same faith if, if she was going to go out with someone. And I was a bit more ambivalent about the thing, uh, as I tend to be. Yeah. And but nevertheless, yeah, we were we were extremely close and there was undeniably strong sort of romantic influence in the whole thing. Mm. And and then as I became more and more convinced of God's existence and and ended up sharing her faith, well yeah. obviously that, that relationship flourished really. Yeah. And and yeah, we we became very close. You yes. know, it's actually a relationship before that. And the one I had with her yeah. was like chalk and cheese. Like, yeah, okay. I mean, but I mean, even at the point of view of understanding what it is to love someone. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really grotesquely cliched as well, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's the truth, you know. So you're but, saying, sorry, just to, mean, to, to repeat. Even at the time, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So, sorry, sir? Yeah, I was just saying you, um, you're saying that the girlfriend you had prior to this girlfriend... There, it was chalk and cheese. It was there was very different in terms of the way you treated her or loved her. Well, I mean, 
think there's a lot of emotion involved because I think any romantic relationship there's always emotion certainly at the beginning and the beginning can be quite a long time mm. like months or even, even even years there was a lot of emotion involved and that always yeah it always gives you warm fuzzies or whatever whatever yeah. way you want to put it yeah but it's something really different to realize that my number one concern is that the other person be happy and that's what I found with her with that relationship like everything changes when you live your relationship according to a different moral principle let's say yeah it becomes tremendously less focused on you and what I can get out of it yeah and what I can get out of it yeah on satisfying my desires yeah and tremendously more focused on actually giving yourself to the other person mm. and that changes everything yeah but it sure. radically changes everything yeah yeah that's no, really interesting okay and then so you have this pretty strong romantic relationship um and then can you talk about well because now you're a catholic priest right and she's a protestant girl that's a really amazing journey yeah. in itself i mean and you're a catholic priest in opus day um can you talk about uh, what happened there like you know you had a strong relationship based in in faith in the idea that you wanted to give yourself to her um what what took you away from that beautiful relationship? Well, I think obviously I didn't abandon my intellectual pursuit when I converted. Yeah. It was my intellectual pursuit that took me to conversion, mm. along with, as I said, the existential questions. Yeah. But it didn't stop like a deciding God exists. Yeah. I, mean, I had to think. I had to think, you know, like, maybe the Jews are right, maybe the Muslims, I don't know. You know? So yeah. I had to think about, about all that. Yes. And then obviously I had to think about Christianity's many, many and various flavors. Yes. So basically my, my Sunday routine at this stage was to get up and go to Mass at 8 o'clock at the Catholic Church, just down the road from my flat. Yeah. And it was a pretty somber affair. You know, there was basically a relatively few people, largely gray-haired types. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'd get up and walk out at the end of Mass. Sorry, my Catholic mate and I would get up and walk out at the end of Mass. And, yeah. Yeah, there was not a lot of activity there and not a lot happening. And no one would really even say hello on, on the way out. It was <laughs> very dry. <laughs> and I'd go back home, hang out for a while, have breakfast and catch a bus and go into town to my, at this stage, girlfriend's Protestant church. Yeah. And the environment was like completely different. Mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of young people really strong in their faith very very good people yeah you know one of my lasting memories of that church is uh, after the Sunday service you know one girl sort of clambering over the seats to come and say hello with a big smile on her face you know just, hi how are you going <laughs> it was such a strong contrast to my experience of Sunday mass yeah. and so I really as I say I had this intellectual pursuit and everything in the intellectual realm pointed me to the Catholic Church yeah but I kind of found myself in this crisis saying well look I mean in the Catholic Church I can find the theology yeah but where's the church like yes. the church meaning, meaning that the people yes you know and obviously I had a lot of reasons to make myself a Protestant number one was my girlfriend yeah <laughs> And, yeah, it was kind of I mean, it was hard in a certain sense to, to turn away from that. Yeah. But, I don't know, I could probably give 
20 examples of things that happened. I think one thing that for me was kind of indicative of the whole process, even mm -hmm. if in, in and of itself it wasn't a deciding factor, was one Sunday, I can't remember why, but I didn't, didn't get to Mass in the morning. And my Catholic mate said to me jokingly, well, you'll have to go to Mass on Monday instead. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and was like, what, they have Mass on Mondays? Yeah. And he says, yeah, of course, they've got Mass every day. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'll go to Mass on Monday. And so I wow. went to the church on Monday morning, mm -hmm. and there was even less gray-haired people there, <laughs> and no one else. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, it was exactly the same. Yeah. I was there, prayed, and left. Yeah. And then probably a few weeks later, I arrived late to the Protestant church one day and there was no room left downstairs and I had a sort of mezzanine area yeah. and so I, I went upstairs to the mezzanine area and there was really no one I knew there and I sat down basically by myself yeah. and I spent the whole service thinking why am I here Yeah. you know and really looking at it I realized that well I was at the Protestant church because there was a lot of good friends there a lot of really good people whom I knew Yeah. but when I went to Mass alone, I didn't miss anything because I was there for God. Yes, yes. And I think when Easter rolled around, so Easter for me was, that year was really big because it was my first Easter as a Christian, right? Yes, which year. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fresh convert, you know, really enthused. Go like, yeah. just naturally you think this is the most important time of year. Yeah. And, and all our Protestant friends went to the beach and my Catholic mate was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm staying here for the Easter services. I was like, what, there are Easter services? So I said, well, <laughs> okay, if there are Easter services, I'm staying with you. Because yeah, yeah. as I say, for, for me, you were just like a fresh convert. It was just the most natural thing on earth that yeah. the most important time of year was Easter. And so, okay, well, I mean, I'm going to do this 100%. Yeah. And um, I think it was there really that when we got to the Easter vigil and I saw the neophytes getting baptized, yeah. that I realized, well, that's where I should be. Yeah. And, and that was it. Wow. Amazing. That's great. And then, um, and then you, so the next Easter, did you get baptized into the Catholic faith or was that, did that happen earlier? Actually, actually I asked to get baptized earlier. So I didn't okay. talk with the parish priest. It was like, you know, you, you should go through the RCIA program and everything, but it, in a certain sense, it's probably what one should do. Yeah. But I was a bit impetuous. I was like, look, no, please, like, just baptize me now. <laughs> I already know. I know what I want to do. And I wrote him a letter, and, and he was extremely pleasant to me and extremely gracious and yeah. agreed to baptize me ahead of time. So yeah, okay. I was baptized probably about six months after, in, in, in November of that year. Okay. Wow. That's great. And during that time, you had started to read the Catechism of the Catholic Faith or uh, the Scriptures and, and any other texts? Uh, look, I've read stacks of stuff, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I was reading the Bible. That yeah. was a bit of a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, the Catechism, yeah. Occasionally, I pick up some books for parlors of the Church or theology books. Um, yeah. And it was all good. Like, I had a bit of a mix of stuff. Obviously, read quite a bit of stuff from Protestant as well but inevitably at an intellectual level I resonated a lot more with uh, Catholic authors yeah okay 
And um, and then how did you come into contact with Opus Dei? Yeah. So basically, when I was still in the phase of trying to answer the question, does God exist or not? Mm. I was talking to my Catholic mate and said to him, you know, I think what I need is just to get away for a few days and think about all this stuff. Yeah. And he goes to me, oh, you know, I know these guys who run retreats. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, what's a retreat? You know, and he explains to me you know, what's, what it involves. And I go, okay, great, like, sign me up. Yeah. And as it happened, it, it was a retreat run by Opus Day. And so I went along to that, and that's, that's how I got in contact. Wow, okay. And you found the retreat useful, um, not only to discern your journey into the faith, but in other ways? Yeah, look, to be honest, I was actually a bit disappointed with it. I was expecting, like, you know, sleeping on the floor and eating bread and water and, you know, something really hardcore ascetical. And I, and I went there and it was like, I never slept so well in my life. And I, you know, you know, fantastic food and all this. I was like, whoa, this isn't the ascetical part that I was looking for. But then yeah. the flip side of it is that uh, what I did find there was behind the good food and being able to sleep well was a really deep ascetical spirit which was much much more uh, was much deeper than, than than just the the exterior things yeah and that that resonated a lot with what I wanted yeah because yeah you know, I saw a real life of prayer of depth you know some of people who who knew how to use all the means in the church's history yeah to get closer to God yes yeah can you describe for me what um, your understanding of the ascetical spirit is for those that might not know? Well, as you probably pick up the, the, from what I've just said, yeah, the term can be sort of multifariously interpreted in the sense mm-hmm. that certainly what I had in mind previously was something more akin to the spirit of Saint Teresa of Avila. Yeah, because I was reading a lot of her works and and she influenced my spiritual life a lot. Yeah, so from that point of view. By an ascetical life or an ascetical spirit, I was really looking for something that was really very intense exteriorly, like yeah. something that you know, and, and involved a lot of poverty and 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 push you to embrace, in a certain sense, uh, almost hardship. I won't. I don't think hardship is the right word, but to be to be detached from worldly things yeah. by giving up worldly things. Yes, I see. And. What I found in that retreat, and obviously the more I got to know over the more I discovered it, was that having an ascetical life that makes one detached from worldly things doesn't mean that you, you have to eat only bread and water. It doesn't mean that you have to have a tough life. You yeah. can live like a normal person yeah. and love all the, th- all the good things of the world yes. without being attached to them. Yeah. And that's the key. Yes, that's good. And... Um... And uh, I guess one important thing to mention, uh, because this helped me a lot in my own faith journey, is um, part of the ascetical life is to do what's called mental prayer. Um, you know, rather than what people typically think of prayer is vocal prayer or just purely prayer petition. Um, can you talk a bit about that aspect of the ascetical spirit? For sure. Yeah, I think it'll be a bit of a no-brainer that when I converted, prayer was already an essential part of the whole process for me. Yeah. Because that was part and parcel of converting, was yeah. discovery of God through prayer. Yes. The result of that is that I was, I entered the faith, you could say, absolutely convinced of the need to pray. 
yeah. and not simply to pray rosaries or throw out a Hail Mary every now and then yeah. or whatever, go and light a candle at a church. <laughs> yeah. Didn't even really understand the point of lighting a candle in a church, to be honest, because yes. I came from a different perspective that wasn't at all ritualistic. Yeah. It was absolutely, absolutely fundamentally based on on my personal discovery. Yeah. And so I, I came into the faith from a very different angle to that which most cradle Catholics have found. Mm. And anyway, so I was, again, talking with my Catholic friend, and he mentioned to me this this girl called St. Teresa of Avila, who was like a master of prayer. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, dude, that's the bomb. That, that's what I need. And yeah, so yeah. I started to read her works. Okay. Because I knew that whatever I wanted, um, whatever Christianity could take you to, yeah. that prayer was going to be an essential part of it. Yeah. And, and it always has been for me. Yeah. And Teresa of Avila uh, introduced you to the concept of mental prayer or the prayer of the interior? Look, I mean, as I say, mental prayer in a certain sense is a terminology that we use to explain something or to put something in a category. Yeah. But that was something which for me was already, I was already doing. Yeah. But what I really wasn't doing was fostering that in a, in a really particularly concrete way because I was at that point just living off the almost I won't, the word is not entirely accurate but the euphoria of having this discovered God yeah and so you know you just sort of spend the day talking with God more or less you know yeah as it happened mm-hmm. but then I think what happens in most people's spiritual journey if they really want to get closer to God is that like any relationship you can't live just on emotional euphoria at a certain point you've got to decide to commit yourself yeah no matter what happens. And so yeah. reading the works of St. Therese of Avila helped me to decide to allocate time concrete mm-hmm. every single day, like to set aside time. I'm just going to stop and sit down and pray. Yeah. And and that obviously coincided really well with the spirit of Opus Dei because you know, mm-hmm. I found in the spirit of Opus Dei that that was part and parcel of the whole thing. You could actually make time every day to get closer to God. Yeah. Yeah, and then you um, so you, you felt connected to the spirit of, of Opus Dei, um, and I'm guessing you started to attend more of their um, their activities that they were organising. Um, so you ended up joining Opus Dei, but as a celibate uh, member. So you know, I don't know. We, I guess I should dis- describe to the audience that Opus Dei is made up of married and non-married members, um, single lay people. Um, but also uh, <clears throat> um, priests uh, who are, have received the sacrament of holy orders. Um, but you, so you decided to join Opus Dei uh, as a single lay member, basically committing your life to 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 Christ, I guess, in a lot in celibacy. So not choosing not to get married and not to start a family, um, uh, but to to give all your time and efforts to, I guess sharing that spirit um, with others. And can you talk uh, about that process and how um, you came to that conclusion that that's what you wanted to do or what our Lord wanted of you, perhaps? Yeah, well, well said. I don't, think, I don't think it ever occurred to me that that was what I wanted to do. You know, mm. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people, most people, when they confront that question, yeah. uh, are also immediately confronted by the fact that that you want to get married and have yes. a family because it's so natural for you yeah, in person. And in sure. fact, it was 
funny for me, you know, someone gave me a book called Vocation and the Words of John Paul II. It's a great little book, very easy to read. Yeah. And I distinctly remember, I mean, I was always somewhat attracted by a life given completely to God and other people, right? I mean, I think that yeah. does have a certain attraction to it. It's a very beautiful thing. Yes. But I never really stopped to contemplate it for me personally. Yeah. And I remember reading this book, I remember distinctly sitting in a particular church and reading this book and got to the point where he started to talk about celibacy and 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 my gut reaction was so violently against the idea. <laughs> I sort of found myself almost laughing at myself saying, but Sam, what's going on? What, what's the problem? It's a perfectly valid intellectual point that he's making here. Yes, no, there's no problem whatsoever. Why are you reacting so so much in contra? Yes. And and that kind of explains a little bit the the difficulty I think anyone, anyone who's normal okay. goes through when confronting that question because yeah. in the end, you're looking at a path which takes you away from what human nature is designed to do. Yes. So I mean, okay, it's, you can't say it's against human nature is inhuman to give oneself to others but the way in which we do it is a sign which neglects in a certain sense or chooses to put aside certain things in order to be able to give yourself to others more and that has a cost involved to it yeah anyway so like i um i kind of resolved the question of my vocation in two ways mm-hmm. the first was to decide okay does god want me to get married or not mm-hmm. and and that was kind of difficult uh it took a long time yeah i think realistically it was something that just took a long time to get accustomed to the idea and to look at it freely mm. because you know i wasn't averse to the idea as i say but yeah. uh, another thing is to realize that that's actually what god wants of you and mm. and that's not the kind of thing well, you know there's probably people who decide that in five minutes but I yeah. wasn't one of those people. I was someone who had to really stop and think about it. Yes, sure. And be convinced, not sure. rush into a decision like that. Yes. And, mm. again, I remember one day I was sitting in the cathedral in Auckland doing my prayer, and that obviously was a fairly constant topic of my prayer, and mm. I sort of realized, you know, the way God made my soul when he made me he made me in such a way that I was never going to be satisfied with a woman. Mm. I needed much more. Mm. And that was it. You know, you, you see that once and you go, that's it. Yeah. Now I know. Um, yeah. And of course, yeah, that, there's a tremendous relief in seeing that too. Well, yeah. there's a tremendous relief in seeing it and accepting it. Yes. I think seeing it and fighting it would probably be a very different thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But seeing it and accepting it, like realizing, you know, it's not that God wants less for me or wants to take me away from something. Yes. He wants to give me much, much more. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's very beautiful. Um, what you experience there is, is quite a, an amazing grace in a way because it's very difficult for most people to see past the, the, our human nature even when they believe and trust um, and love God, that yeah, uh, that can only come through really opening yourself up to our Lord through prayer, through a real in, uh, intense dialogue. Then, so you you obviously joined Opus Day and decided to commit yourself to Christ completely and forego marriage and having your own children. 
and then um, your life became what you were working professionally in IT and then also um, in your time outside of work uh, focusing on giving formation spiritual formation to people is that how it worked yeah exactly I think which yeah is, well I mean certainly from the point of view of people in Opus Dei it's completely natural you know, but you, mm. you maintain your normality in the sense that you, know, you, you, you continue working and doing whatever you were doing beforehand and, yeah you know, get involved in all those sort of things the, the, the stuff that you love in this world and at the same time you have certainly in the case of us numerates who don't get married that yeah. you know, we have all this time available to communicate exactly what's inside your heart to many other people yeah yeah that's good and then you did that for how long well, you, you were um, living in Auckland working in IT and uh, doing that for a year or a few a few years so I was well I was after joining up I was I stayed in Auckland for about a year and a half then moved to Sydney okay I was based in Sydney for a few years, then in Melbourne. And and you started to, you you decided to change career paths um, at some point, and you went to back to uni, right? That's right. Went back and studied ancient history. That was quite a change. Yeah. What was the the motivation behind that, or what made what? Why did you make that change? Actually, that was that was entirely uh, practical in the sense that yeah, I developed this um, bilateral neuropathy in my arm, so I had to cut down the amount of typing I was doing. Oh, wow. So I decided to look for a job where I, I wouldn't have to type so much. <laughs> and I figured, well, with history, I have to read more than type. <laughs> okay, wow. That's an, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, and then you studied ancient history, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. And then, um, okay, and then tell me a little bit about how <laughs> the next step in your life, which is a huge one as well, is uh, becoming a Catholic priest. And tell me about that journey. So you're studying history... Um, and and then how did you go from studying history, living as a numerary member of Opus Dei, to the priesthood? So I think that so I think for me the path to becoming a priest was probably not too dissimilar to other people in Opus Dei, yeah. but at the same time probably quite different to other people in the church. Yeah. And so really the key point was when the opportunity came up to go and extend my theological formation, studying overseas, being here in Europe. Yeah. And I mean, I I leapt at the opportunity because I mean I've really enjoyed all my theological studies and yeah, I consider it extremely useful for communicating to people for having people understand. Yes, and so it was it was a golden opportunity for me. Mm. But then part and parcel of of that was I knew that also the the possibility of of being ordained would become a more proximate reality. Yeah, that while you know, in theory it's possible for everyone. Yeah, uh, being here and studying theology, it was it was far more likely. Yes. And yeah, you know, the interesting thing was that although previously I, you know, I never doubted that I was where I needed to be. You know, it's one of the great things I've had in my life is I've always been able to say that I've been doing whatever God wanted me to do at the time, mm-hmm. which was awesome. You know, I've, literally everywhere I've been and whatever I've done, I've really enjoyed it. I've had a fantastic time, met so many fantastic people. But yeah. then moving here, I had the chance to stop and think more about those sorts of things, the yeah. priesthood and whatnot. Yes. And certainly, almost for want of a better way of explaining it, prepare myself psychologically for the possibility that, you know, is this really what I want to do with my life? Yeah. I have to say, I mean, yeah, 
it's extremely attractive when you think about it to be a person who's like a hundred percent there for souls just yes whenever and however people need them yeah and you know i'm really glad, grateful that saint Azaria gave to us an day a really good understanding of the priesthood as one of complete service because yes in the end yeah that it makes it makes it very possible for someone to choose to get ordained or to accept being ordained yes with that idea in mind that they're not there to be anything special they're there to be for other people yeah and so anyway i was here studying for quite a few years and then the prelate finally extended an invitation to me that if i'd be willing to be ordained which by that stage i was already quite convinced about yes and so obviously i left her the chance and said yes yeah awesome well that's great man and then i wanted to ask you um about your family because you know you've gone on this amazing journey um in life to discovering god to having a relationship with him to finding that the catholic faith offers you um a lot to finding opus day which is a bit of a bright very bright spot within the catholic church at the moment anyway and uh and then being ordained as a catholic priest it's an incredible journey but Throughout this journey, um, where did your family fit into the picture? Because they uh, didn't go on the journey with you, I'm guessing. Um, and yeah, where in your mind, where have they? Where do they fit into the picture? I think that in the end, yeah, they, they fit into the picture in as much as um, either son or brother or nephew or whatever to the members of my family and. Yeah. I'm really, I'm extremely grateful to them that they've never presented even the slightest obstacle to me. And I think that that's real testimony to the fact that they have a tremendous openness and a real idea of respect and tolerance, which are are words that get bandied about today and even used really as an excuse for a type of totalitarianism rather than tolerance. Yes. And... I think probably it's one of the advantages that we have in a small country like New Zealand that we are kind of a, a multi-form culture that we are young and youthful and we have a very kind of optimistic outlook towards things. Yeah. It's easy for ideas like tolerance to be a reality, not just an idea and, yes. and much less an excuse to impose one's views on others. Yes. And I've seen that lived out in practice with my family. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, they're... Um very much part of your prayers um, because as a Catholic I know also that Christ invites us to pray for people and that that um, I guess it's quite a mystery but that in some way helps them so are they someone that uh, a group of people that you're constantly praying for for their that they come to experience what you've experienced yeah of course I pray for them a lot yeah. but at the same time even more interesting for me is the idea that although my family aren't believers yes occasionally when something really difficult happens they'll ask me to pray for them or for the person who's suffering whatever that point happens to be yes i think that kind of reflects this idea that in, in human nature even surpassing a thing of faith or belief in god yeah. there is a sense of need for prayer and, and even a level of solidarity yeah for sure and and 
can you talk a little bit about because I know your mother passed away a few years ago um, you know a lot of people don't understand um, the Catholic faith and and our understanding of those that haven't been um, I guess formally baptized and brought into the Catholic faith some people may think oh you know we think that they are will never have a relationship with God eternally. Um, how did you deal with that? Um, and because uh, I guess oh, well, it was a few years ago, I mean, you'd had time to learn a lot about the faith, but how did you deal with that, knowing that your mother passed without um, being herself received into the Catholic faith? Uh, look, for me, to be honest, I think my my mum's death was actually like a nothing short of a demonstration of divine providence and the whole story is probably too much to go into now but mm. uh, at a certain point she had actually expressed a lot of interest in becoming Catholic and okay. unfortunately she was so unwell and there was uh, so many sort of other circumstantial things around that it made it kind of impossible to facilitate Yeah. but okay. then when she was very close to dying in the last few days I was able to be all of us in the family were able to be with her and again I probably don't have time to go into all the details but yeah. it was a real experience of divine providence to be able to talk with her and with her in a broad sense she was so unwell she couldn't respond but she could listen mm. I could see the response in her eyes Yes. talk with her about preparing herself for death Yes. and you know I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that she died a very holy death in fact, I, I know she lived a very holy life. Yes. Uh, although she didn't have faith as I have it. Yes. She dedicated a life to doing good and yes. did a tremendous amount for a lot of people. Yes. And, and she died extremely well. Yes. Now, okay, there's a lot of times people don't have that opportunity to talk someone through the preparation for death. but. Yes. Uh, even if we don't have the time to, you know that God does. Yeah. And you know that he's going to prepare souls much better than we ever can. Yeah. And that even, as I say, if I had the chance to prepare my mother for death, yes. well, that's only because God organized in that way. And yes. he could just as well organize it in a way that has nothing to do with me. Yes. Uh, she, she was, um, your mother was an Anglican, was that right? Well, she was baptized Anglican. She never practiced. Never practiced, yeah. But you talked a bit about her. She did a tremendous amount of good. Yeah, she was a pediatrician yes. who, more than anything else, dedicated herself to helping abused and neglected children. Wow. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, and uh, that's great. And is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or mention that um, we haven't really covered? No, dude, I reckon we've covered everything <laughs> yes we got through it thank thank god because uh we've been meaning to do this for a long time and uh different things have stopped us but finally we've done it so yeah. um thanks so much father sam for sharing your uh, incredible story and as you mentioned to me previously um you have a sense that god um, doesn't write in straight lines and I think that's evident from your life story well I think yeah sometimes we see the path the way to be we see a straight line as the most obvious route yes and he doesn't tend to choose that 
That's right. And uh, and uh, though I always find it remarkable how um, people, we all f- feel very much attracted to the stories where uh, it is not a straight path, you know, where the, it's not a, just a, a simple narrative. Um, it's a bit more nuanced, complicated, and there's different twists and plot points, and <laughs> which I think your story has. Um, so anyway, thanks again for sharing. And um, yeah. hopefully um, this can... Uh, you know, help um, other people in their own journeys. Mm-hmm.